And welcome to another edition of Across the County. I'm Noah. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, as I record this, it is in the dog days of 2020. And as it airs, it'll be the brand new 2021, which we all hope is a little bit better, actually a lot better than the year before. But I am having a little bit of a different route for this show because I think it is needed for all of us. I'm going to talk about three things that I have a tremendous passion for, and we're going to have a little fun on the show. And those things are music chess and history and my guest is david shank check him out at davidshank.com and david is an award-winning and national best-selling author and that right there is in and of itself just a tremendous feat of six books including the genius in all of us and that has new insights if you haven't read it into genetics talent and iq so check that book out again davidshank.com and this next book is one we're going to be focusing in on for a majority of the discussion it's called the immortal game now i know that sounds kind of sci-fi kind of highlander but no it's a book on history chess and chess history it all kind of intertwines and so we're going to be talking about that and his band that's right. He's got a rock band as well, kind of Americana genre, My Friend Frank. And so it's a tremendous time with my guest, David Shank. Hey, thanks for coming on, taking a couple of minutes. Hopefully you had a nice Christmas and we have a great 2021 in store for us, my friend. Hey, no, I'm really happy to be talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on and we'll get to the books here in just a moment where well, you were born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and see here that your journalism career kicked off with tremendous fashion at the uh, Hilltop Frolic Gazette as you were editor in the third grade paper. That must have been a tremendous experience for you. Yeah, Mr. Mucci was uh, I was trying to be the weatherman. And we had all the jobs listed and, you know, people kept putting up their hands for the jobs they wanted. Yeah. And he, he kept passing me over uh, and he wouldn't get, let me be weatherman. And the reason is he, he was saving the editor in chief's job for me. So uh, that was, <laughs> that was kind of crazy. Hey, that's it. You and, wanted uh, to do weather and you got the big role. Oh, that's good stuff right there. It's, it's true. Sometimes, sometimes you're just, you're not looking for the big breaks and they come to you anyway. That's right. Well, you uh, graduated college, you moved to Washington, D.C., and then actually I also read here, we're just kind of playing, you know, roulette with some of the things I just find fascinating about you, that you spent some quality time with Dan Quayle. A lot of people know Dan Quayle. What quality time did you share with Dan? Oh, man. So I was, yeah, I was a freelance journalist in the, um, during, during the, the first George Bush term. Okay. Um, and George H.W. Bush, yes. uh, the father. And uh, some people listening will remember Vice President Dan Quayle, who uh, we were laughing at pretty hard then. Uh, he, he wasn't a bad guy, but he, uh, I think it's fair to say that he, he really did not have a, uh, a level of seriousness that, that, uh, that uh, I think gave him, you know, uh, auspices to be uh, Vice President of the United States. Anyway... He was uh, he was fascinating to a lot of people, and um, I I got an assignment to do uh, a profile of him, and I got a chance to interview him. And it turned out uh, they the, the once you kind of get accepted for an interview, they tell you when and where it's going to be. And and um, I get this kind of last minute call, and they say uh, we want you to come with the vice president to a, a trip to to Nashville. Okay, he, he was speaking at a college. 
so not only did I get to interview Quail, I got to fly on Air Force Two and go through that whole rigmarole, which was uh, for a you know twenty something pretty fun. And I ended up uh, interviewing him. They then they don't tell you when the interview is going to be. They they bring a bunch of journalists on. And, of course. And, and and you know like fifteen seconds before your time is up, they tell you to to come up. And on the on the flight there, they had. Uh, they had Maureen Dowd from the New York Times and a few other people talking to him kind of one one by one. And so then we then we get to the college and uh, we, we saw the speech, which I, I frankly, I remember it well. And I thought it was pretty, pretty terrible. Yeah. And and we're getting back into the into the motorcade. Uh, my one and only time in a in a presidential or vice presidential motorcade where they literally shut down the, you know, the highways and everything it was crazy. That must have been a great experience. It was wild. Just everything about being with uh, the vice president or the president, you're in this incredible security bubble, which is, there's just nothing like it. And uh, it's, it's, it's very much like it looks on TV. I mean, it is just a military operation. And anyway, we're getting into the cars on the way back to the airport. And I'm in the press car because there were a couple of press cars, uh, travel, maybe just one press van, uh, you know, in a row of, uh, maybe 20 cars traveling with the vice president that day. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the van, and then all the walkie-talkies start going off with my name. Where's David Shank? Where's David Shank? They decided at that moment that they wanted me in his limo for the ride to the airport. That would be my, you know, 15 minutes or whatever. And so I had to sprint to the to the vice president's limo, and um, and at, for for a brief moment, for maybe 60 seconds. The entire motorcade, Secret Service, the whole operation was waiting for me to to get there, and they're all yelling at me to to run faster. And I I jump into this. I'm this sweaty, you know, young kid with no experience. And ah. I jump into the limo, and there's Dan Quayle, you know, six inches from my face. It's, it's actually a pretty tight space, and I'm like struggling to get my tape recorder going. And yeah, book open, and um, and and uh, and we had a um, we had our little interview. It was, it was, there's nothing like it. I mean, that's about as high profile you can get without actually getting into politics. And that sounds like it was a great experience. Yeah. Now, of course, a couple of years later, my, my youngest brother, Josh also became a journalist and he won up me because he got to ride on air force one with the president. Um, so, you know, that's, that's just a little sibling rivalry and he won that one. Well, it sounds like you need to take another opportunity and uh, even go above that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the Pope. I don't know who. I don't know who is above the president, but um, uh, the Pope anyway, would be a good one. The Pope would be a good one. So, tell sure. us also. Last little random fact: you also developed a passion for Ethiopian food. Where did that come from? I mean, I've had it myself. I absolutely love it. But uh, tell us, you didn't have this passion for it your entire life. You're, you really you read you read deeply into my. Book. I did a lot. I, I do love Ethiopian food. I love a lot of different uh, uh, what we call ethnic food, but and and foreign foreign national food. Anyway, Washington D.C. is at least when I was there in the '90s was really the entry point for I think it was the national entry point for Ethiopian immigrants. It was a really thriving community. Okay. I think it still is, and there were just some fantastic Ethiopian restaurants, and we happened to live in the Adams Morgan neighborhood near uh, a whole bunch of them. And it just, um, in addition to just tasting great, I'm kind of a messy eater. And 
I, I like to eat with my hands anyway, so it was perfect for me because you get to Ethiopian food is something you really don't use utensils for. You eat it with oh, sure. the injera, with, with the bread, uh, it, kind of using that as a, a glove, and then you eat the actual, <laughs> you eat the utensil, basically. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I didn't remember that was even in my bio, but that's, um, that's something I, I still carry with me. Oh, you and I share very unique experiences. I, I love Ethiopian food myself. If you've just joined us, David Shank, our tremendous guest here on the last show I'm recording for 2020, first one for 2021. And he has contributed to magazines and newspapers and websites, radio programs like this one since 1989. Some of them you can find on davidshank.com. So obviously, David, you play chess like I do. But the question is, one, how well do you play? I know I think I saw a couple of hints in the book of the Immortal Game of exactly uh, how well that is. But tell us about that, how you developed a love for this century-old game. Yeah. Well, the truth is, I'm, I'm a pretty poor player. I mean, I'm not terrible. I'm not like, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, a, a poxer, as they say. Um, I, I can avoid some of the dumb mistakes, but, um, when I started, um, I, I did not come to, to write, uh, the immortal game out of a personal obsession with being a player. Um, I came to it, um, I came to it, uh, and I'll talk about this in a second, but first I want to try to answer your question about sure. me actually being a player. Um, I, I actually came to it out of a, uh, uh, just an, uh, 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 almost obsessive quest to understand the, the history of the game and, and why it, this game has, um, transcended so many cultures, so many centuries, so many different age groups. I mean, this game, there is nothing like this game in terms of its, its universal appeal in in every dimension, a five-year-old can learn it. A ninety, you can you can spend your entire life fascinated with it, night and be a ninety-five-year-old and have played it all your life and still still kind of be uh, mesmerized by the majesty of it. Um, culturally, it, it infects essentially every uh, nation on Earth, every culture that's ever existed on Earth, going back about fifteen hundred years, and. Um, I just was dying to know kind of what is it? You really can't say that about any other game, about any other, um, any other piece of literature, any other, really anything about human culture. There, there's almost nothing that transcends so many different uh, ages, centuries, uh, cultures, languages, et cetera. And, and it's, it's really this universal thing. And I wanted to understand it better. But just to, to, I'm sorry to go on and on, but just okay. to answer your, your actual question, uh, your, your, your first question, I, I'm not a good player. And when I entered, when I entered my several year odyssey of researching and writing the book, I thought, um, for reasons we can get into, I thought that maybe one of the storylines would be, I would learn to be a good or perhaps great player. And I would, I would kind of document that. What I discovered, uh, <laughs> what I discovered was I kind of had to make a choice about how to spend my time. I could spend, I, I kind of realized maybe a month or two into the process that I could spend, you know, 12 or 14 hours a day researching and trying to understand uh, the, the breadth 
and the historic importance of the game, mm-hmm. or I could spend a, you know, a big chunk of that time trying to become a better a player, truly, you know, a truly um, impressive player. But I, I pretty quickly learned that I couldn't do both wow. with my time. Yeah. And, and I, and I, and I pretty, I, I, I it was easy choice for me because I'm, um, I, 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 lo- I love the game then. I love the game now. I played a couple of chess games just today. So it's, I, I enjoy playing, but I never did have an incredible obsession about being uh, a great player or putting in the time to become a great player. And, um, but, and I, but I, yet I did have the, the, the extraordinary drive to kind of document it as a writer and a researcher. And, and that's where I ended up spending my time. Well, you really nailed it from a historical aspect. And even in the prologue of the book where you have Marcel Duchamp from France, you know, he's a cartoonist, he's a painter, and he kind of dabbled with chess. He played family vigorously, but it wasn't really until his late 20s where it became that addiction for him, where he literally dropped his career and just made his career playing chess. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And this history goes deep and you document this in the book. Yeah, I mean, one of the um, one of the really fun. This was, I think, the probably the most fun I've ever had writing a book. And not to say that it wasn't hard work, but it's you could um, metaphorically or literally throw a dart in the direction of any history book or any page of any history book or any year that's ever existed. If you kind of imagine like yeah. a big giant, you know, calendar of the last fifteen hundred years, um, you know, on a wall, you could throw a dart. At any at any part of that, and I'm telling you, you can find a great story about well-known people who were obsessed with chess. I mean, I didn't even begin to um, to like get down all the details of all the incredible stories and all the uh, well-known uh, people uh, throughout history. Who oh, I'm make, sure it's uh, limitless. It, it really is. I just kind of picked, and and that that's. Uh, that was part of the fun. I had like hundreds and hundreds of stories that were fairly easy to acquire. Of course, I did some work and tried to dot my eyes and everything and sure. make sure that they were, they were, uh, you know, they were actually true stories, but, um, but I, then I got to choose the best stories. You know, the Marcel Duchamp story is amazing. Here's a guy who, um, I mean, one anecdote is that he, he, he pretty much blew off his, his wife on his honeymoon. His yeah, that was, that was bad. That was bad. And and then here's a guy who, um, I mean, if you were to list, I don't know, if you were to list 20 of the most important artists in the last uh, 100 or 200 years, Duchamp would have to be on that list. He really transformed art in a, in a quite profound way. And, you know, just an incredible, incredible thinker and creative mind and intellectual and, and cultural icon. And, and here's a guy who literally gave up this at the height of his career gave up all of that just to play, just to um, not even to play chess, but just to work out chess problems. Oh yeah. Um, it was that his obsession was that intense and, and he had a lot of chess related art as well, which um, it, it's, it, it's, and it's like you said, it's like you said, he was not that he wasn't even a good artist because he was a tremendous artist and he gave that all up for this obsession of this, this game. If you can imagine, I mean, who I'm trying to think of what the modern, you know, the contemporary analog would be. But if you can imagine like Yo-Yo Ma 
you know, the cellist or um, who's someone else at the top of the game, uh, you know, Barack Obama or someone, you know, who's just absolutely, you know, doing such important things every day that, that really ch- impact millions and millions of people stepping up to a microphone one day and saying, you know what, I'm going to take a, that five or 10 years off so that I can play. I'll be back. I'm going to go play some chess. What? <laughs> it's an odd thing. but And yet, to anyone who's listening to this who plays chess even like semi-seriously. You get it. Um, you, you get it. <laughs> you, you, you get it. You know how obsessive uh, this people can be about this game. In fact, just to wrap back to your first question about sure. me being uh, an ordinary player, um, I cannot tell you, and, and, and this probably won't come as a surprise to any chess players who are listening, I can't tell you all the disdain I get, um, I've gotten over the years from people who have heard about my book and then looked into me as a player and wondered what my rating was. <laughs> and when they found out that I wasn't even rated, like, how dare I, you know, how dare I write who's not even a serious, you know, na- nationally or internationally known player, dare to p- put pen to paper to write about this game. I mean, it's almost offensive to, to some to some uh, serious players. Well, you obviously, like me, have a love for history, David. By the way, David Shank, my guest. Check him out, davidshank.com, author of six tremendous books. You can find them on the website nationally, best-selling author. And we're talking about one of those books, The Immortal Game. And it's just an amazing book on the history of chess, which is, it's called A History of Chess. And I also love the other part of the title or how 32 carved pieces on a board illuminated our understanding of war, science and the human brain. So, David, it must just be a tremendous experience as you're going through this book. You love chess, even if you're not great at it. You love history. And I imagine the deeper that you got into writing the book, it almost kind of wrote itself, didn't it? Well, the stories, you know, the, the best problem a writer can have, and not to say that it's not still a problem, uh, is to is to have way, way, way more material than uh, he or she can use. Yeah. Because, um, because a book, people think, people who don't write books, and that's most people, they can, they, they understandably have this idea that, wow, it's, it's this immense effort to get all this information and to, you know, to build something as big as a book, hundreds of pages. But the truth is, when you're researching a book, as I do for a couple of years, you end up with literally thousands of pages of sure. material. And, um, and the, the, the biggest problem in writing a book, once you've done your research, is actually to whittle most of the, to whittle it down to just a couple hundred pages. I guess that's what I was getting at, is just the amount of material historically that you found. It's not like you were sitting there scratching your head on what to come up with, because it was all there. More, it was the process of what do you not include? Exactly right. Exactly right. In fact, there's a, there's a very famous history of chess uh, by the son of the, of, uh, the inventor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and I'm actually blanking on his last name right now, um, but I'll look it up while we're talking. Sure. Um, and and he, here's a guy who could never impress his dad because his dad like basically did the most important thing in the history of English literature. But um, he did. Uh, the son was also a very impressive guy and knew dozens of languages. And he ended up writing about a thousand or fifteen hundred uh, word, a fifteen hundred page history of chess way 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 more exhaustive and, and longer than mine 
uh, Murray, um, H, I think it's H J Murray is his name. Yes. And, and he, and, um, and it's not a terribly readable book by, by today's standards, but it is exhaustive. It has, you're going to investigate the history of chess. Uh, this is where you start. It's, it's got so many, so many different things. And, um, he, he basically, this again is, is kind of a, a, for someone like me, this is a writer's dream to stumble into someone who's basically already done, um, literally years and years of research and, and put it into uh, a book that you basically wrote is he wrote my encyclopedia (laughs) for me. And not to say that I didn't go other many other places, but it was an incredible starting point to kind of read through this book and and see how uh, see how broad the material was, and and then just start uh, putting together uh, all these different stories. And David, do you have a favorite section of the book? Maybe uh, something from history that most don't know about that maybe you didn't even know about until you discovered that relation to chess in and of itself with this particular thing that went on throughout history. Oh God! You're asking me to choose like my favorite child now. Oh <laughs> yeah, let me try to say a couple of things about that. I mean, first of all, you you save your best, you save your absolute best story for for page one, paragraph one, because you want to rope people in. Sure, you do. And the most intoxicating story that I've come across was going back to. Um, keep in mind, I'm I'm writing this book not long, not terribly long after. Uh, our our modern war in Iraq, and um, and yet I was I stumbled on a, a story from a many many centuries old uh, wartime story from Baghdad, which is obviously an ancient city, and I got to tell this incredible story about uh, the caliph who is defending uh, Baghdad at the time, mm. who uh, who history and legend has it was was literally his his city was being was being burned down he was losing power it was you know it, certainly the epic battle of of his life uh and it was close to the very close to the end of his life in fact and he could not be distracted apparently from a chess game that was going on even as his army is uh is getting um you know literally burned alive um, but there's so many great stories, and as I said, you can you can reach into any uh, different piece of history. Probably the most interesting part for me was discovering. Um, I, I wanted to answer, as I said earlier, I wanted to answer kind of one big question, which is how and why this game um, transcended so many different centuries and so many different cultures. Sure, because you even point and, out in the book there's a few games that have been around a long time, and they've, you know, transcended a couple of cultures, but nothing even remotely close to the centuries upon centuries, just transcendence of time of the game of chess that affects every culture around the globe. Yeah, that's right. And so, and so for me, the big challenge was to try to come up with um, not just stories, but um, hopefully observations that that link some of the stories together and to try to answer that big question. And and what I came up with was um, was that chess is not just a, a personal obsession for so many players. It's mm. also this incredible template. And there's this there's this paradox of chess that the, the central paradox of chess is that it's um, 
it's an unlimited, it's a virtually unlimited world in the sense that once you start playing the game of chess, the number of possibilities of how the game can turn out is effectively limitless. I mean, it's not actually it is. infinity, but it is so, it, the, the number is so big that um, it's uh, literally more than the number of electrons in the universe, and that's going to sound crazy, but I have actually the, the calculation in my book. It's, it's way, way bigger than any number of any physical thing or anything else that you could think of uh, metaphorically on, on the Earth. So, so there's, that, there's that kind of in, infinite possibility in, in, the, in the game, and that's one thing that helps explain uh, the, the, uh, the, the kind of ferocious... Um, interest that players have in it. The other thing, and the thing that makes it a paradox, is that it's also um, completely removed from our, from our actual world. Even though the, a lot of the pieces are named after, you know, uh, uh, pieces in an, in an army and, and there's kind of metaphorical connections, mm-hmm. it's literally, the, the game itself it's, it, it has its, its own universe. Once you start playing this game that's on 64 squares, you know, with, with, uh, with, um, you know, with just a handful of pieces, really, um, you, you are in a universe that is completely separated from anything about your life that exists. You can, mm. get, you can get lost in that world because of its infinity, but also because it does not connect to your life in any way. It is, it is kind of walled off uh, intellectually because it doesn't have, to. I mean, there, are, again, there are pieces that, you know, the Bishop and the King and the Queen and things like that, that are connected to, you know, to by name to things in real life. But in, but in actuality, they don't, they're not connected. There's, they're not connected at all. It's its own, it's its own almost infinite world. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's the there's this uh, series that I recently discovered on Netflix, and it's called Queen's Gambit, and it's actually it is a great great series, and it really shows what you just described, and that's why this main character I'm not going to spoil it for anybody in this series became completely just obsessed with chess because she wasn't loving the way her life was going, and this game took her out of her life, and she was able to explore this whole new world, and she never wanted to leave. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fond of, of the series for a couple different reasons. It's one of the things there are two things about it that I really like. One is that uh, it is uh, they really did their homework on chess. They, they did. They have a number of, of well-known chess players and chess uh, chess analysts and historians advising the, the series, and they made sure that all of the moves were were sound. All the games they talked about were were kind of were logically sound, and, and a lot of them are quite famous. And um, I've never come across anything that that takes chess as a game. Uh, as seriously as, as this TV show, so that's really nice as a as a player um, and as someone who takes the game seriously to see that they you know that this isn't just some kind of uh, they're not just using chess they're they're actually being true to chess and and the other thing I really liked about it is that um, and this is con- connected to another book I wrote that you mentioned um, called The Genius and All of Us about where mm-hmm. uh, where talent and intelligence come from is that the, the, the Queen's Gambit tells the true story of how people become great at, at anything. And, and, and the true story is about the development of skills. Mm. 
Um, it's about a process. It's not about someone being born with a certain gene or set of genes that kind of magically makes you great at tennis or the trumpet or chess or, you know, running track or whatever it is. It's about um, a combination of psychological drive, um, about time, about instruction, about um, about um, the will, about incredible uh about resources to learn and um, the story of the Queen's Gambit, and I, I don't want to give it away either, but it's, uh, it is about an extraordinary woman who's an extraordinary chess player. And they, they, the way they document her obsession with the game, um, I, I really enjoyed that as a, as a writer because it, to me it was true to how be- people become great at not only chess, but anything, which is to say it's, it's a story of their life. It's a story of what's driving them and their needs psychologically and otherwise and how they enter a certain world and have the motivation to to become great at, at a certain thing. Yeah, it's great. And the, the main character in that in the Queen's Gambit, she's able to relate to other people. As you watch the series, you'll figure it out that, yeah, maybe they have different lives and uh, other problems that are slightly different from hers but they understand why she's come into this world why she's obsessed with it and they all share that passion and she develops a very close-knit group of friends and it's incredible and chess is really like that it is and it's you know it's it's one of the things that makes makes it so great to be alive as a human being is that we have um we have we have incredible capacity i mean we we really do we can we can learn, we can train our brain to adapt to really an extraordinary variety of circumstances, be they physical uh, or intellectual or abstract. And, um, and it's, um, you know, not to say that there aren't incredible problems in the world and, and, you know, and there are, uh, and we could spend, you know, a thousand shows talking about those problems. Oh yeah. To to live in a to live in a world where where a lot of us have the luxury of having at least a little bit of extra time on our hands and where we can kind of um uh you know some of us even have too much energy and we don't quite know where to put it. To to be able to to be able to take an hour here uh uh or or a you know, a, a half hour there, uh, you know, every day or every couple of days or whatever it is. And, and, and to be able to kind of immerse yourself in, in another world that, as we said, you know, a few minutes ago is, is virtually limitless. I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing. And to become, <laughs> to become so good at it that, um, that, that you, you know, that, that it can, um, it can occupy your, you can kind of take over your mind. Now that, that can actually go in, in a bad direction as well, no, but, it can. Uh, but it's also just a very kind of exciting thing and a statement about the capacity, I think of the human brain. Now, the human brain is an amazing thing where unfortunately I knew this was going to happen running out of time here on across the County. The book, in and of itself is great. I'm going to be finishing it up here this next weekend. Can't wait to finish the read. And if you haven't heard of the book, it's called The Immortal Game. And it is such a tremendous experience. It's really a human experience. The Immortal Game, a history of chess or how 32 carved pieces on a board illuminated our understanding of war, science, 
and the human brain. It's really such a perfect title. It's lasted for centuries. It's gotten into people's heads and even influenced the thought process of so many throughout history. David, we didn't get a chance to touch on your music, but I do want to say real quickly, because I'll have you on my podcast, we'll talk about the music a little bit more in depth. People can check out your band, which I think is actually just uh it has a great sound. My friend Frank. It's kind of rock Americana in genre. And I do want to point out that the God of your surround is an awesome song. Tell us the meaning behind that song, because I was listening to it last night and I was pretty captivated. Oh, that's so nice of you. I, I, I appreciate your interest. Uh, yeah. So um, the, my friend Frank is really a collaboration of myself and, and, a, and a Dan McKenzie, who's a college friend of mine going back uh, several decades not to date us, but that's how old we are. <laughs> and, and, and I'm the, I'm the singer songwriter in, in the band and Dan is the producer and, and music collaborator. And, and we both play a bunch of different instruments, but Dan plays more than I do. The, the song God of your surround is, uh, I'll give you the short version. It's a story of, of my father and I climbing uh, Mount Whitney in California uh, many, many years ago when I was I think about 10 or 11 and um, it's a it, it's a story of uh, of lessons, uh, l- some lessons that I learned on that mountain in this in this very beautiful um, in this very beautiful and austere place. Mm. I actually hit the nail right on the head as I was listening to it last night, and I thought that to myself, it's got to be about a father and a son, uh, some type of experience they're sharing. So I think that is just tremendous. Having kids myself, it's a great song to be able to just really get you to reflect on what's important, which is kind of what we're all going through with the 2020 now in the rearview mirror, isn't it, David? Yeah, I mean, this year has been so troubling in so many ways, but it does. There, there are some silver linings. I, I hope for for all or, or most of us. Uh, obviously, not not for the people who've really been stricken with the disease, but um, but you know, in terms of the of the isolation and and the kind of craziness that uh, all, uh, that it's put all of us through. Uh, I, I I think, at least speaking for myself, you reevaluate your relationships. You spend time mm-hmm. with with at least some of the people you love and you learn new things about them. And speaking for myself, I know that our time in quarantine has, has yielded some really profound uh, results for, for relationships in our family and, and also between uh, me and some of my closest friends. So mm. you, you take that, you take it where you can get it. You do indeed, and it's happened between me and my sons as well. You can check out his music, The God of Your Surround, is the track we were talking about. He also has album two, TWO. It's out now. It's an EP. You can check that out on iTunes, on Bandcamp, and I hope to talk to you more, maybe on the podcast, about more just in-depth on the music and how you guys came up with it and about the band, my friend Frank. It's been a tremendous talk, and David Chang, thanks for having the first show of 2021 right here on Across the County. It's been a pleasure, my friend. It's an honor. No, it's great to talk to you. I love all your questions and all your interests, and I'll talk to you anytime you want. We look forward to it. He's written magazine articles. He's been in newspapers, websites, radio broadcasts, just like this one. He is a musician, and he is an author of so many best-selling books, including The Immortal Game, A History of Chess. Check them all out, davidschenk.com.